This is Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers, brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now here is your host, Matt Fitzgerald. If you're a preacher, do you ever look out at the faces in your congregation and think to yourself, I wonder what they think is happening here? How are they approaching this? What kind of expectations or anticipation or assumptions do folks bring into the pulpit? Why are they here? How is it different from listening to a sermon on the internet, at home? What's going on in the pew, not the pulpit? So this is the conversation that we have this week with three keen listeners to sermons with Steve Peterson, Lovely Carter, and Rachel Adams. I hope you enjoy these three. They are uh, thoughtful listeners, the exact same kind of folks I'm sure you have in your pew or next to you if you're sitting in the pew yourself. It's a fun conversation about what it's like to listen to sermons and how we learn to do so. Here they are, lovely Steve and Rachel. My name is Lovely Carter. Um, I'm 36 years old. I live near Midway Airport and I work for the Department of Homeland Security. So you, so when you think back to your lifetime of listening to sermons, um, can you think, like, when did you first start realizing that this was a thing that was happening? Like, did you pay attention to sermons as a child? Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I have a reason for that. So I felt like I went to church with my grandmother. It was a forced, you know, I had to go to church where I didn't have options. But the sermons there, it was so fast. It was like it's the speed of light where the pastor's like, turn to this book of the Bible. And he say something really fast. Turn to this book of the Bible. So everything was moving like so fast and nobody really explained the Bible. So I was just there. And this went on for years. You couldn't keep up? It's not that I couldn't keep up, but um, it was just like no explanation behind it. People would say these books of the Bible and kind of quote it, quote the book, but never really explained what it meant to me. Mm. So did you feel... Um, did you tune out? Did you feel left out? I felt church was a, a horrible experience for me as a child. Um, I was afraid because at her church, it was, it was a non-denominational church. But, and, and I mean, I respect everybody's beliefs, but as a kid, I didn't necessarily believe in speaking tongues and Holy Ghost. And it's not that I didn't believe in it. I didn't know what it was, and it scared me. Mm. So every Sunday, these people like jumping around, screaming, and falling to the floor. I would actually leave the church during that time. So I would just leave and go and sit on the porch of the church, and I felt isolated because the pastor they wanted to pray for pray for me every Sunday because they thought something was wrong with me. But I was just afraid of what they were doing. It's like I don't know if the Holy Ghost is like is this really a ghost getting inside of people? So for for like a good five years, I was just going to sit on the porch of the church and when i heard the drums and the music stop i would come back in when you hear a sermon like what do you think is happening well now i understand things better i think for me i had to find a church that fit my that aligned with my beliefs and kind of what i believe in i felt comfortable with which is here and sermons mean a lot of things i think for me i'm still a baby christian so uh if i could be completely honest sermons is dictated by my attitude and what's going on in my life. When things tend to be really going really well, like I'll come to church, but I don't necessarily pay attention. I mean, I pay attention, but all my focus isn't there. I may start like thinking of other things, blah, blah, blah. 
when things are just horrible or I've had like a bad time at work because I've talked to somebody, you know, it's been tortured or something and my spirits are low. It's like, I want to eat up every word of the sermon. Like, you know, it's like, I need it. Oh, that makes perfect sense. I mean, it's funny as a, when writing sermons, I have the exact same thing going on. Like, um, I feel like I probably write better sermons when I have some desperation in my life than, you know, when, uh, it's not that you can't be grateful and that gratitude is a wonderful way to access God, obviously, but, um, but it's the sort of dark night of the soul that, <laughs> that yes. leads to that sort of intensity, right? Yeah. Do you feel like when, when you hear something in a sermon that you don't like, that you, uh, or not don't like is the wrong word, when you hear something in a sermon that you object to, that mm-hmm. rubs you the wrong way, that you disagree with, um, what, what happens in that moment? I can't, well, I, that would tie me back to my career. You know, 70% of, of wars and civil strife is caused by religion, and a lot of people don't know that. But what's going on in Syria, religion, in the Middle East, religion, pretty much Africa religion. So because I have to work with people from all over the world, you know, I've gotten to a point where I have to respect everybody's religion. I may have an atheist sit in front of me and say, hey, I'm being persecuted in my country and they've killed my family because I'm an atheist. And I can't say, oh, this person is an atheist. So, you know, I can't help them. So for me, religion is a slippery slope. I don't feel like I'm even allowed to view it like normal people would view it. So regardless of what the pastor is saying, I respect what he's saying. He or she is saying regardless of, of if I agree with it or not. Um, and I also try not to treat religion like a toy where it's like, okay, I can like this aspect of the toy and don't like this. You know, if it's biblical and right is right and wrong is wrong, then I need to take it in. And if I don't like it at that moment, at least think about it. Yes. Did you always see it that way? I mean, before you, before you became a lawyer, before you sat with people who are fleeing religious persecution, um, I mean, there must have been at some point in your life where you heard sermons, right? That, I mean, you, no, you I probably... Always, I didn't always see it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I, you know I, I remember I used to always say, I would never like date an atheist, and I probably still would. But, <laughs> um, but I just had like all these, these convoluted ideas, and now someone I'm dating is a Buddhist. And back in the day, I probably wouldn't have done that. But since I've started working here, it's like, it's okay to have different religions. And may the best man win, you know? Mm. Like, we'll, you'll know if you're right when you die. Yeah. So my attitude towards it is, I respect your religion. You have a right to believe in what you want to believe in. And we're all going to die one day, and we'll know who's right and who's wrong. <laughs> we see through a glass darkly right now. I right. love that. Um, I think that's, that's, that's good that... Um, but I, I think that it's interesting. A lot of like liberally minded, open minded people, or people who like to think of ourselves that way, um, we still will have a very hostile reaction to things that are said from the pulpit that we object to, rather than sort of letting that wash over us, right, or just sort of holding it off at a distance, or just kind of sitting, well, all right, that's that that person is that 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 that's their belief, but doesn't have to be mine, right? Yeah. Even though they're in a position of authority. Um, yeah, that's a strange thing because I think people bring in all sorts of different, uh, I mean, parishioners, congregants bring in all sorts of different, um, levels of trust and authority and ability to kind of like sit with things they don't like. So sometimes like a preacher will get a very strong reaction from people, um, or from a person that somebody else might also think the same way, but they're kind of like, man, that's, that's what he thinks. I only react to it, um. When when someone try to force their religion on me, for instance, 
I was driving with my uncle to Wisconsin last year, and he's a he's a pastor. I don't know what denomination. But the entire ride, it was just the most annoying thing ever because he was like, you know, gays are going to hell, and this person, they're going to hell for this, and all gay people are going to hell. So his granddaughter's gay. She married a woman, and he just won't get over it. He raised her as if she was his child, and he just cannot accept that she's gay. And so I got upset not because he's anti-gay. like that. He has a, he has a right to be anti-gay. It's his opinion. It's his beliefs. But I was upset after like three hours of this. After I told him I don't agree with him, I felt like the issue should have just been a dead issue and we could have changed the subject. But he was trying to force it on me. He, started, he wanted you to agree right, with he him. He wanted me to agree. He started quoting the Bible and all this other stuff. And, you know, and that's, I think, when I kind of get upset when people do that. In general, pastors, parishioners, it doesn't matter. I just feel like we should respect each other's beliefs. And it's okay to do that. Like, what does it, what do I lose by respecting what you believe in? If you say today as a pastor, I've decided um, gays, you know, they're all going to hell. It's your belief, and I lose nothing by you believing in that. It doesn't affect me one way or the other. That's really an interesting thought. The, um, but at the same time, you probably wouldn't want to be in a church where the preacher was, like, frequently saying, you know what I mean, where the, the preponderance of things right. that you were hearing were things that you disagreed with. Um, but it's more you're, you're going to recoil if you're told, lovely, this is what you have to believe. I right. believe it, so you have to believe it. Right. Yeah, and I think sometimes people can assume that that's what's happening in a sermon, you know, mm-hmm. especially people who have had, like, upbringings in churches that are really narrow-minded or really, like, like place a ton of authority on the preacher. I mean, I, I definitely think every time I preach, and I know sometimes I can sound very insistent or dogmatic, but I definitely believe, like, kind of along the lines of what you're saying. I'm going to put this out there. I think it's true, but I don't need you to swallow it like I need my kid to swallow her medicine. Right. You know, like I, I expect that you've got a brain. You're going to wrestle with what I'm presenting, not just, yes, sir, right? Yes, um, yeah. yes. Um, but that, that, that was, um, me and my grandmother to this day, we still battle over religion. And it's the weirdest thing ever because we're super close. She raised me like her child. And so I didn't like the church I was brought up in. And now she's at a new church. I won't call it new. It's new to me, but she's been there for like 10 years. And she invites me all the time, and I've never stepped foot in her church. And I told her, I said, if I ever step foot in your church, I believe me and your pastor will get into, like, a really heated argument. And <laughs> because, you know, she, she says things. Like, one day she called me up, and she's like, are you an organ donor? And I was like, yes. And she's like, no, my pastor said, no, don't be an organ donor because they'll kill you and take your organs. And I, and I was like, this is what your pastor is teaching you? And, and I was like, who is they? Who, you know, who is they? Ask your pastor who is they. He said, they said. I was like, where is he getting his source from? You know, and I told her, I said, that's dangerous. I was like, religion, I feel like religion and pastors, they're almost like weapons, mm-hmm. depending on how educated the people are. So my grandmother is very uneducated. So whatever he says is gold. You know, if he tell her to turn over her house, she's turning it over. Her money, she's turning it over. So I think it has a lot to do with socio- socioeconomics also. So by her being uneducated, this pastor say being an organ donor is bad and you're going to be killed. She doesn't want to be an organ donor. Or he says this. So it's gold for her because that's like the only, I guess, system or base of education that she has. Um, so, yeah. So, so yeah, like weapons. Yeah. I mean, I mean, too much trust, misplaced trust. And then, of course, um, I mean, a lot of a lot of preachers are um, broken sinners and that's what they're leading with. Um, when you hear ministers start to like. Uh, crack jokes. Do you think there's room for that? Do you think does it does it? I mean, what's your sense of that? 
humor like humor it. in the pulpit. You like it? I like it because, um, you know, to, to continue to come to a church, you need to feel comfortable with the congregation and, and most importantly, the pastor. And so it kind of, it takes them from that super human, uh, you know, view that you may have to, oh, this person is just a regular person like me. He has a sense of humor. And then you may have a parishioner that has issues and they feel more comfortable. I would feel more comfortable coming to a pastor with problems. You know, if I've seen him crack jokes, I'm like, okay, he has a sense of humor. He's approachable, opposed to somebody that's like always serious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. So so there's a there's a humanizing. But I like that. Like the point is not how entertaining can I be, but maybe if I'm relatable, right? right. If the preacher's relatable, that's going to open people up in a yeah. different way. Don't overthink it. Like yeah. if you feel like the joke wasn't funny, it's not about that. It's just about people seeing you like, Okay, we get it. You're the pastor, and you're in a position of leadership. But at the same time, it's like, oh, he's a regular person also, and I can talk to him, and I can approach him. One thing I think a lot of preachers worry about is trying to find the right balance between using themselves, using their history, telling their own opinions, and then also functioning in a more sort of clinical way, pointing toward the cross, being distant from it all. I don't want to make this about me. You know, you're not here for Matt Fitzgerald. Um What's your sense of like a good balance or what's your sense when ministers, preachers start um, talking about themselves? Um, I actually think that's great. So I, I started doing online, like looking at sermon, sermons. Well, before online, I was doing CDs. So there's this mega church on the west side of Chicago and I visited the church, but I didn't like the atmosphere. But, you know, I liked the pastor and his sermons, So I started ordering them online. And then, um, I don't know how this happened, but one day I was watching TV and I saw Joyce Myers. And I fell in love with her. And to this day, this was years ago, to this day I still listen to her. The main, one of the main reasons like I was attracted to her sermons is because she always talked about how she was raped by her father. Mm-hmm. So her father, like as a teenager, he like slept with her for a few years mm-hmm. and it really damaged her. And I think she like turned to prostitution and drugs and her life just went to crumbles. Um, I say that to say... People who kind of disclose some of their life or something about them, it kind of gives you something to relate to. I, be, I believe as humans, we we admire, we respect, and we understand people more when we can relate to them. And I was never raped, but um, it's just the fact that she has problems. She suffered. And I don't see her as some pastor like in the office, you know, like, oh, let me get this sermon together. And he's out there just spitting out words because it sounds good. But this is somebody I feel like everything she says comes from the heart because she experienced it. It's not a situation of, oh, misery, love, company, like, oh, I'm, I had a horrible life. I want my pastor to have one. It's not that. But it's just, okay, this person has actually had problems that they've overcome. God worked for them, so God can work for me. Mm. So in that experience of listening to sermons online, I know you're on the road for your job a lot. You know, you're not always in church on Sunday morning. You like the CDs and, and, and Reverend Meyer stuff. Like, how is it different to listen to a sermon in isolation, you know, on your headphones or sitting in front of your computer or however you do that in your car, on a plane, or in the pew on a Sunday morning? It has its pros and cons. I'll start with the, um, for me, when, when I decided I just wasn't going to church anymore, um, like I was just like, I don't like church. The church has turned into a business, you know, and I mean, it was years, over 10 years, and I just had all these maybe assumptions, kind of like all churches are like this. They, they're business now. Pastors just collecting um, tithes and buying bigger cars and, and, and jets, and I refuse to, to support it. So I stopped going, and 
it was I would do the sermons online and listen to the DVDs and CDs. And what I told myself, my way of justifying this was God is in my heart and I don't need to go to church. I can read the Bible and like, why do I need to go into a physical building? So that's how I justified my behavior. Um, so the, what I found now that I come to church, I enjoy it a lot more. I understand it a lot more. It's kind of like trying to teach yourself math. You know, you may get the basics. One plus one is two, but then when you get to calculus, if you don't have a teacher or tutor, somebody to explain the harder stuff or, you know, to give you a different perspective and a different way of looking at it, you're going to fall short. And then you also need somebody to hold you accountable. You know, are you really going to sit at your table and learn math for two hours a day, every day without um, being distracted? So I found with church, it's like I'm being held accountable. If you didn't see me for the next like six months, I'm sure you'll reach out and say something to me, you know. You bet. So, <laughs> right. But before, it was no accountability. And I really didn't understand what I was reading. I would read the Bible and read the same passages. And it was like two of them max. And I was just reading them over and over again because that's all I really understood about the Bible. So I wasn't, you know, learning as much as I should have been learning and getting from it what I should have been getting from it. And I also, because I wasn't going to church, I really didn't have any good Christian friends. And so coming to church, you get to meet people, you know, who believe the things you believe in. You can talk about things and... Even if you don't believe have the same beliefs, you still have an atmosphere where you can discuss certain you know issues regarding like Christianity and God and the Bible. So that there's that sense of of uh, back to your math analogy, like how how do you solve this problem? What do you know? Here's what I know, right. and then you both learn more, right? right. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Is it important to you that sermons be? Uh, you have a reverence for the Bible. Is it important to you that they be biblical? Um, that they stick close to the to the text to the reading that you just heard. Not necessarily, because there's still a, a lot of books in the Bible. If you read it to me, I have no clue what it's like really saying. So I'm more so like sermons that are broken down to the most basic level where anyone can understand. Uh, you know, just someone who is not experienced can understand. Like I more so want the message from it. You know, you can sit and say, "Oh, you know, read Acts one through 20. and I can read it a zillion times and may not get anything from it because. You know, some of the books are connected to other books, and I didn't go to school for this. You know, yeah. so I like it when a pastor kind of breaks it down and show me the way and teaches. Mm-hmm. I think that that teaching aspect of preaching is um, neglected sometimes, or under you know, like like yeah. we, I don't know, we don't want to be boring. We, um, yeah, I mean, one of the things I'm going to take away from this conversation, lovely, is a reminder of the of the degree to which um, preachers have influence in people's lives i think we can yeah like especially liberal preachers we don't like to like own our own power you know we don't Mm -hmm. think of ourselves as powerful people we don't think of ourselves as influential in people's lives we want to because power is bad you know so we want to kind of push it away but we do have it's i think it's very powerful um regardless of if you have a mega church with thousands of members hundreds of members or if you're what i call a storefront church I think it's just the most powerful thing ever, and sometimes it's misused on purpose and not on purpose. Um, like the storefront churches, you know, I, I call hand-me-down sermons where they don't go to school to learn about the Bible. It's just like, oh, my grandfather said you're going to hell for being gay, so I'm going to preach it. Mm. My grandfather said you're going to hell for having a child out of wedlock, so that's what I'm preaching. So you just have like these hand-me-down sermons from generation to generation. And they never really stop and ask themselves, do I really believe this as an individual or did I hear it so much that it has become my belief? 
Yeah, and the, the and that kind of like traditionalism can really shut down also the movement of the spirit, the voice of God. You know, like yeah. correcting our errors. Lovely. Thank you so much for taking time to to think deeply with me about these things. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I grew up as a Swedish Lutheran, spent years in graduate school. I'm a lapsed academic. I, I studied uh, early modern philosophy, theology, history of science at Yale and University of Chicago. And when my daughter was born, my wife uh, suggested I gain the dignity of wage earning labor. So I stumbled into uh, the field of investing, and I've, I've, I've been in investing for a couple of decades. Um, so uh, that's a little bit about my background. The Swedish Lutheran church that you grew up in, do you remember anything distinctive about the preaching that you heard when you were young? Like, at, at what age were you kind of coming into consciousness around, this is a sermon, this is what happens when it takes place? We, we had a really serious uh, pastor. He was uh, um, very theologically uh, articulate, a graduate of the Yale Divinity School, and a real Swedish pietist. And he would get revved up in his sermons, and often... Uh, during the final hymn, he he would step down from from the pulpit and start playing the piano, and you'd sing another hymn. It was wasn't quite a black church experience, but it was really moving. And uh, so uh, there was a lot that was going on intellectually, but there were different layers. And so I grew up with wonderful preaching, wonderful music, and uh, um, I'm profoundly grateful for that sort of uh, nurture. Do you remember the first time that you heard a sermon that you felt like you wanted to push back against, that you objected to or, or, or reared back from somehow? I, I don't have a particular memory of that, but uh, I think because I, I was exposed to, to, to such good preaching growing up, that I, uh, when I started to hear bromides and platitudes and lazy preaching, um, it uh, it confused me and, and it, it it made me a little angry. I mean, why why are we wasting our time with this? These are serious um, serious matters. I mean, there's something at stake. What do you think? What do you think is at stake? Like, what are your? I guess, what are your expectations when you when you come into church and you sit down? Uh, or as the sermon approaches, like, what are you hoping will happen? What do you think ought to be happening? I, I don't, there's not a single thing. It could be a lot of different things. I mean, I'm, I'm fond of, of Richard Baxter, the, uh, the 17th century Puritan pastor. He, he, he remarked, uh, uh, I preach as a dying man to dying men. I mean, there's something at stake for the pastor, for the preacher, but there's also something at stake for the for the listener, for the for the congregation. Um, this isn't just uh, take up your cross and sign up for a coffee hour. Um, and uh, um, you, you, we, we were all dying in this world together. Yeah. And how do you make sense of that? Is this is a serious matter? And uh, now, serious can mean a lot of different things, a little, a lot of different tonalities to that. But but uh, um, it's it's uh, it's not just going to an entertaining movie on Friday night. Do you think though, like as a as a vehicle of communication? I don't think anyone is making the claim. I mean, liberal theology would hold that sure God is able to speak through 
of movie, right? Um, but nobody is saying that like that happens on the regular, that that ought to be kind of what you're anticipating when you buy your ticket and sit down in the theater or fire up your, uh, your Netflix. Um, but, you know, preaching makes that claim, right? Um, this Karl Barth quote, preaching is human speech in and by which God himself speaks like a king through the mouth of his herald and which meant to be heard and accepted as speech in and by which God himself speaks. So, like, that kind of thing can be daunting for a preacher, right? Here I am, uh, uh, I'm listening for God, and it's quite the audacious thing to do, to stand there and, and, and get yourself in that space. And I have found for myself as a preacher that I will. I believe in that theological claim, but it's certainly not the first thing on my mind when I'm writing a sermon, or it would just be too intimidating a task. But when you listen to sermons, do you think, I mean, are you listening for the voice of God somehow? Are you expecting it to be happening at a sort of sacred level or, uh, you know, kind of otherworldly dimension that, that you're not going to get into in other, in other kinds of, of performance or other kinds of words? Well, it, it, it's, it's not just... The issue of, of expectancy is not simply a theological issue. I, I, I do agree with the prophet Isaiah, the word will not return empty. Okay, I, 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 but, but that's not just a theological issue. How you, uh, how you come to the theater or to a movie, what kind of expectancy do you have? I mean, do you really, do you really, uh, and, and, and if you have low expectations, then you you'll, won't find stuff. It's a kind of alertness, mm. maybe, um, that you really expect to be um, moved or provoked, or or and and some of that is, is, is responsibility is on you. It's not just a passive receiving, and that's just as true for a sermon, I think, as for a uh, for a movie. How about? Um... Just some things I think preachers think about when we step into the pulpit or when we're composing sermons, if that's what we do. Um, so I want to kind of lightning around a few topics that you okay. What's your, What do you think about jokes from the pulpit? It's so contextual. Um, you know, humor can come out, but it's uh, yeah, it's all it's all a question of, of how it's done, and and the the artfulness or the the humanity and and so on. Um, yeah. How about like use of self on the preacher's part in terms of um, anecdotes about one's own experience, self-disclosure, using the preacher using herself or himself as the as an illustration? Yeah. Again, I think it's very contextual. It's it's I, I think good. It, it, I can think of of, of of ten different sermons that I, I was really moved by, and they operated in such different ways. Some can be very personal. Um, and some are not personal at all. I mean, it's just hard to. It's like saying, "What is a what is a good movie?" Yeah. And 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 you can and, and there's a lot of different ways to be moving and humorous and provocative. So there's, you're not going to go as a listener. You're not coming in with a sort of set of hard and fast expectations about or hard and fast rules about uh, this works for me. This doesn't. This category of communication that I find appealing in this category I find offensive it's more is it well done is it yeah yeah, yeah. um do you expect I mean you're you're theologically knowledgeable biblically knowledgeable do you expect there to be um like close exegesis of the text you know I I think that it's hard I, I think it would be hard to be a good preacher without close exegesis 
and particularly texts that are boring or difficult. Because I, I think it's so easy to uh, revert to cliché and to sentimentality, you know, preaching about Jesus looking for the lost sheep. And, and you rarely push yourself, rarely push the congregation, rarely move into more serious territory. And that's not, again, that's a point not just about preachers, it's a point about the role of constraint for an architect, for a painter, for a poet. Um, you, know, the, you know, the challenge of so much modern poetry, for example, is, is, is without the constraint of form. And and it's and people underestimate how hard it is to do that. Form creates the the kind of pressure that leads to imaginative production, and I think that's just as true for for preaching. I mean, if you don't have the discipline of the lectionary of, of a particular text that you're working with, I think you just wind up repeating yourself eventually, using cliche and becoming sentimental. It's not just pressure from the text, you also have pressure from the world. Yeah. After 9-11, the Black Lives Matter stuff, I mean, that creates a different kind of pressure that, that you want to respond to, but how you respond to it is, is complicated and, and, and difficult. Preachers, I believe, the, the content and the quality of their preaching is not in a vacuum. Um, for instance, mm -hmm. I preached a sermon uh, at YDS a couple of years ago, and then I took the, and it was like one of those magical moments as a preacher where it just crackled. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the, you know, God decided to show up, and, and it was a powerful experience, much more so than uh, I would have anticipated. And um, I took the exact same sermon to a different venue, preached mm -hmm. it again, and it died. It yep. just fell flat. And... Yep. Uh, uh, now, uh, you know, Bart would say, well, again, it's up to God whether or not God shows up on a Sunday morning. Yep. And I think that's true. But at the same time, I also think that, like, who the people that I was speaking to yep. were. And it wasn't something I'd composed with that first congregation in mind, even because I didn't yep. really know who I was going to be talking to. Yep. Um, so why, why does that happen? Well, I mean, it's, is that that different than reading a novel? You read Moby Dick when you're 18 it's going to be a little different than when you're 35 and maybe divorced or lost your job or maybe then when you're 68. You know, you can't read the same text twice. Um, and that's just one person. <laughs> and one in a text that has words that don't move on the paper. Yeah. Um, but with a sermon, it's more, even more dynamic. I mean, your, your body is changing, your, your voice, your... Uh, the, words may be the same, but you have 200 different people whose, whose lives are uh, different. I think it's a pretty good way to think about the history of, of Christian theology. It's just the history of misunderstandings and, of, of, and mis, mis exegesis. And, and, it just, and it just keeps kind of roiling and you know, creating this fecundity out of it. And, and I mean, there's something really wonderful and lovely about that. Yeah, because it, it it really is not in your control. I mean, it's not just a theological point; it's all it's also a linguistical point. It's, and, it, it, it is the word is is the word start come out of your mouth, and then and then uh, and then they work, and they work because of different all sorts of dynamics that are happening in a congregation. It could be nine eleven. It could be someone just had a baby. It could be somebody's hungover. I mean, who knows?
Um, it could be somebody misheard you. Um, and uh, I mean, that's why this issue of expectation, I think, is really important. If people come expecting that, that, that you're serious and that uh, um, you're working on, on these ancient texts in a, a real way, then, then, then they will open their hearts more. If I, they think you're kind of lazy and, and just more bromides, then it's going to work. The series of expectations will work the other way. Well, that's interesting. So one of the things I hear you saying is that uh, as a listener of sermons over time, evidence of the preacher's, you know, like elbow grease, right, is is important to you. Mm-hmm. That, that that earns trust, yep. right? To know that they're taking it seriously, you've said, but also I, behind that is putting the time in, putting the hours in, pushing yep. themselves. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. I don't, and I don't think that's any different than, that's another human dynamic. It's like, when you're when the CEO of your company says something, I mean, you you have a certain view of him based on how he's behaved and what he's done. Yeah. And so how you prepare, how serious you are, that's part of it. And part of it is just the human connectivity. Um, and uh, you know, pa- the, the way pastoral care is linked to preaching. And, uh, you know, just small gestures of, of, of answering emails or or just a pat on the back i mean oh, that can open up someone's heart yeah and how you break open someone's heart because that, so it's not just just hearing the words and and analyzing intellectually but you're you are looking for a deeper kind of connection and that connection is kind of energized by a human connectivity and by by the by relationality right yeah, i mean yeah. i that, that's interesting because i think sometimes the theology of preaching that i try to ascribe to um downplays that dimension of it severely because it wants to and this appeals to me it wants to get the preacher kind of out of the equation at some level mm-hmm. the preacher's personhood out of the yep. equation so that it doesn't become uh, here I am, you know, you, we all know that I'm a loving, trustworthy person mm-hmm. and, and therefore X, Y, and Z is going to unfold. But rather, my role is to be really as opaque as possible to point to the cross mm-hmm. um, so that, you know, there's that old kind of Lutheran understanding that you know well that it doesn't matter if the preacher is yep. a dirtbag or not. It doesn't matter if yep. the preacher even believes what he's saying or not, yep. so long as he is proclaiming uh, well, right? You yep. know, in terms of, of point, again, pointing to the cross uh, accurately. Yep. Um, and there's something about that that I like because it uh, chastens my ego. Mm-hmm. Um, but I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, if I've exhibited to a congregation over time that I'm unreliable, that I'm a flake, that, mm-hmm. you know, that, yep. that maybe I don't believe the things I'm saying yep. because of the way I live my life or whatever, how could, how, right? yep. how could yeah, you yeah. then... Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't think it's either or. There's a wonderful scene in one of the Marx Brothers movies where Groucho is sitting at a table in a restaurant and the waitress comes over and asks, uh, coffee or tea? And Groucho says, yes, please. And that's kind of the way with a lot of these antimonies, a lot of these tensions. Yeah, there is this objectivity. I mean, you are pointing to the cross. And, and that's what, that kind of bardianism. I mean, that is precious and, and exactly true. But, but that's not all. And so you have to do... So you have these tensions, and 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 you're like again like all artists. I mean, they're 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 they're, they're trying to navigate these antimonies, um, and uh, and there's a, there's a lot of theological concepts like that, you know, judgment and mercy. 
Um, you know, mercy without judgment is sentimentality, and judgment without mercy is just a harsh, uh, anti-human. I mean, so, so. But how how they work in a particular, how they work themselves out in the instance is that's the art of it, or that's the challenge. Wow, that's beautiful. What do you think about the fact that when, like, as I preach, I look out and I see individuals listening, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I also see the congregation. I see the church. I see a whole. Um, I love, uh, out of the black church tradition, the way that preachers will address the congregation, you know, Ebenezer, right? Mm -hmm. You know, name the the community. And that does, I, I do believe that. But at the same time, I do definitely see like, you know, a collection of individuals listening. And I hear back from people who, you know, we post our sermons on the, we- on yeah. the church website. People listen to them, I assume, in isolation um, and sometimes have, you know, positive experiences. Why is it important if when listening is something that one does alone, um, why is it important that preaching happen with so many people, you know what I mean. With a, yeah. with a, whether the so many people is fifteen people who show yeah. up on a Sunday morning, or some church that has four thousand people, why is preaching something done? You know, one voice speaking to a collection of people, yeah, yeah. or a community of people. I mean, there's a wonderful remark by a medieval rabbi. Uh, it goes like this: um, bread, uh, bread eaten in communion with brothers and sisters, tastes different than bread eaten alone. And I, I think that's the, how hearing occurs, too. You know, you think very concretely. Uh, you know, I, I come into the sanctuary, and I, I chat with Greg, who I had this profound experience in Haiti with. And then, then I see Kurt up there as, as the, the conductor of, of the choir and the joyfulness of his body, which is just spectacular. And then I'll see uh, this toddler who I worked with last year in Sunday school, and teaches the wrong word, but goofed around with them and, and you know, they come running up. And so, so there's, all, there's all this human interaction and, and that creates a kind of a context. Um, or, or you're thinking about somebody who just lost their job. You see them across the sanctuary. And or, so all this, stuff, all this stuff is kind of going bing, bing, bing. Or I'm sitting next to my wife and, and just I can't wait to get home uh, uh, over dinner uh, to to uh, talk about a certain image because I want you know I want this to go so, so the sermon is kind of working mm-hmm. the words come out of your mouth but the, the then it, 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 it they they kind of move through this community in all these unexpected fascinating ways that they're, they're very human and and uh, if I was just listening on the the uh, computer you know then it's more, I mean, and this is this is my real challenge in listening. It's I want to return to the University of Chicago seminar. I'm just analyzing it, and then I'll I'll think about the the, the different philosophical or theological moves, and then I shouldn't confess this. I, I've even given bibliographical suggestions to preachers, which is just so embarrassing. You know, that I would do that, but I mean, that's, so so that's a way of. Of, of, that's a kind of way of resisting the sermon, mm. resisting preaching, the preached word, because I, I, I'm able to control it through this uh, intellectual analysis. Oh, that's instead, really interesting. Instead of breaking, allowing my heart to be broken open. And your heart is broken open by your love for and knowledge of the people that you're in the room that's with. That's part of it. That can, yeah, exactly. It creates this communion, and, and, it, and it's a little different today than it was two years ago when I first started coming to St. 
Yeah. Because I I know these people. And in 10 years, it will be a little bit different yet. And then that's not the only way hearts get broken open. But, but, uh, uh, you know, my biggest challenge, one of my biggest challenges as a listener is uh, escaping all the deformity of too many years of graduate school. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and my experience in theater was really helpful with that. Um, so it's not just analyzing this stuff, but it's being open to it and letting it work. And and not simply having it be subjected to a finely honed mind that understands, right? Yeah, the, the history it, of you know, yeah. Then I, then, I, then you can dismiss it. Yeah. Um, one one of my professors in seminary said something once that that I have found. Uh, quite intimidating over time, which was that you better have a, a, a consistently a consistent theology that you're proclaiming, um, so that what you say on you know in a in a sermon on Good Friday corresponds to what you're preaching on the third Sunday of Advent. That these things are are related to one another. And um, I both heard that point, you know, as a young person heard that and thought, oh, man, I have a lot of learning to do here. Mm -hmm. And you kind of preach your way into your theology, I think, as a preacher. But at the same time, like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I have broad coherence over, over, you know, over a span. So as a, as a trained theologian, is that something that's important to you? Do you know what I mean? That, oh, this contradicts something I I heard this person say. I would disagree with that pretty strongly. (laughs) Look, look at the inconsistency and diversity of scripture. Um, and you know, Ernst Kaseman, the great German New Testament scholar, once said, Scripture is not the source of the unity of the church, it's the source of the disunity. And of course that's right, because if you're preaching James rather than Paul, if you're preaching the domestic wisdom of Proverbs versus the apocalyptic wisdom of Ezekiel, you know, on and on and on. I mean, and, and to, to, to pay attention to the particularity of the particular text in front of you, and then there's next Sunday. You know, and the f- Sunday after that. I mean, you you can't say the whole. You can't preach the whole gospel in a Sunday or a year or a lifetime. Yeah. You know, and but you keep working at it, and and, and the tendency to be consistent, or then you, I think that leads to a tendency to be abstract or generalized. And I think that's really uh, dangerous or simplistic, yeah, right? Simplistic, yeah. yeah or, or that's what leads to bromide. Yeah, but I think too not only bromides, but also I hear what you're saying too that it arrests it arrests the diversity of the text yeah. too. Like I mean, one of the things I've I've come to think in the second half of my own life is God can show up in different ways. Yep. And so, like 15 years ago, I read Moltmann's The Crucified God, and I thought this is it. This mm-hmm. is a doctrine of God I can get behind, and this is true for all times. And I preached out of that perspective of you know God lacks omnipotence, God mm-hmm. suffers. God is abandoned for a long time. And then, you know, as my life changed, I thought, well, it's not that I, I, I not only got bored of that yep. mode, but also I started to experience God personally differently yep. Yep. as, as stronger as, you know, and, and so then the question isn't, was I wrong, but rather it's relational. God's relating yep. to me differently. So thank you. I feel a little yep. relieved now. Yeah, It's like Groucho Marx says, he's always right. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> Coffee and tea. <laughs> My name is Rachel Adams. Um, I'm 32. I live in Chicago's Logan Square neighborhood with my husband. I work in account management. 
Um, and I'm a writer and a potter and a cook. When you listen to sermons, do you come into church like ready to engage what you hear in a way that is different from going to a movie, reading a poem? Like I think a lot of churchgoers, like you come with this attitude of sort of like put on piety. You're performing piety. Like I'm going to church today. But of course, you're actually this like totally confused disaster of a human that you are every other day. Um so I always come thinking like I'm, I'm ready to hear the word, um, but really I'm like thinking about, did I, you know, did I put the dog in the kennel? Is the dishwasher running? Did I run the dishwasher and it was full of clean dishes and totally engaged in like the rest of my day? So your mind is sort of in two different places at once? Always. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what I love so much about the liturgy is that it's sort of, it's like a... Because it's like this repetitive practice, this repetitive thing that I do every week. And it's become sort of not not mindless. I'm, of course, like still engaged with it. But it becomes this sort of it's almost like a yoga class where it's getting my sort of conscious, like surface level brain, all of those distractions sort of cleared out of the way so I can actually like focus and or not not focus rather, but just like sort of make myself open and um, ready to actually be in church instead of performing like I'm in church. Oh, it's interesting. So it, so the 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 prayers, the hymns, yeah. the walking in and out, all of those liturgical pieces sort of open you, prep you too, and ground you in this space. Yeah, it sort of like slowly calms me down. It's like tires me out like a like a child having a tantrum you know those like all of those other thoughts and worries and things that are distracting me it sort of like works all of that out so I'm not thinking about um the other things and and finally like when it's time for the sermon like very conveniently my brain is mostly empty in a good in a good way like like an empty vessel prepared you know that's great I think sometimes that preachers I mean I know this as a preacher we tend to think of the sermon as the, and in our liturgy here, it certainly is. And in a lot of sort of reformed word-based liturgies, it is. It's like the, the centerpiece, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, literally at the center of the of the service. But we tend to think of like these other things as, I don't know, somehow in, this is bad, but um, not as important or as sort of introductory pieces. At the same time, when I'm worshiping, when I'm not leading worship and I'm able to worship, I, I often feel like, you know, the sermon will be good or will be bad or will get me or won't or I'll be able to focus on it or not. Um, and yet, it doesn't totally determine the experience that I'm having on a Sunday morning. You know, it could be the the prayer of confession could be the thing, like that whatever happens to me at that moment um, can be so profound that nothing in the rest of the hour, even a really great sermon, is probably not going to get me off of that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think one of my best experiences here at St. Paul's, it wasn't any of it wasn't sermon. It wasn't any other part of the liturgy. But this one day I walked in and was just really grumpy, just like in a bad way. And this family of an adorable family with a bunch of little kids sat down in front of me. And I was like, oh, great. This was going to be my time with God to, you know, have this healing and cleansing experience. And I was super cranky and I was kind of going through, you know, the mechanical process of church and it, I think it was like, it must have been like during confession and absolution. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly when it happened, but that at this moment, like I realized like this very tender interaction that was happening between this father and his kids. 
and just something about seeing like that family interaction of like being able to observe that and like see like oh you know as someone who comes from like a chaotic childhood like being able to bear witness to like that sort of tender interaction between parent and child when I didn't necessarily get that like that was that was the message that I needed to hear today and it really like sort of prepared the space but totally totally understand what you're coming from like the sermon it's a it's always something that I enjoy and it's something that um you know I'm I'm one of the nerds that like I will I will listen to like sermon podcasts on, on the train instead of you know like music or whatever um but I feel like the preacher's job during a sermon is to like create this space and hold this space and make this tiny bit of a vacuum for sort of I don't if, if it's grace or whatever it is to come to come through and give you this opportunity to have this experience like that's the the entire point of to me like 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 any good therapist or any good pastor it's not a prescriptive relationship where you're being told what to do it's a space to sort of hold a space and give these sort of guideposts and let you sort of work it out and have your own experience. And Do I you feel that- like that's implicit? Um, I mean, does that need to be named and said that, um, look, I'm going to sound dogmatic here from the preacher. Right? I'm going to, and this is going to sound rather dogmatic, but actually I don't expect you to believe everything I'm saying here. I'm, I'm throwing it out there for you to do just what you said, for you to, to stretch it out, to test it, to bump up against it, to dialogue with it. Um, is that, does that, should we, what am I trying to say? Should preachers assume that their congregation knows that, do you know what I mean? I, I know exactly what you mean. I think, I think my response to that might be different than a lot of other church going demographics as like a 32 year old covered in tattoos in like a hipster neighborhood. You know, my, I definitely appreciate it, especially because of my, background with like not only authority figures but like I haven't been a Christian my whole life and for a very long time I was very much not a Christian um and it can hearing that sort of finger wagging can sometimes take me out of it which which I think sometimes needs to happen um but it can sort of pull me out of the sort of experience of receiving the sermon Mm. into a thinking about um, okay, what that that's not right. Like that's that's rude. I know that's not right. In in case of that, there was earlier this year I heard a, a sermon about forgiveness and talking about forgiving people and how important it is to sort of extend that and like what a gift it is to them and everybody deserves a second chance and like if we sh- we should just be more like Jesus and love everybody and I was like yeah but my dad like hit me a lot like no (laughs) that's not right and it really pulled me out of that um and i think that i think you know sort of that like trigger warning generation right yeah where i don't think it's necessary but i think and i think that it and even that sermon was very useful in its own way because it gave me that opportunity to sort of like validate that you know what you don't have to forgive everybody as a negative example almost exactly like to sort of validate my own beliefs against it yeah like it was a good mirror but that's that's a rather sophisticated and and generous level that you're allowing for in that instance and i I wonder sometimes if again if we ought if we're if if one is preaching in a non-dogmatic environment where they're not saying this is you know what i am saying to you is the absolute truth for all people in all times um that 
because preaching can look that way and even sometimes sound that way when it's not intended to, that maybe we ought to be a little more um, front load things with, look, you know, the expectation here very much is that you are not going to swallow all of this in an absolute way, but you yourself are going to be, again, as you said, Mm -hmm. sort of like testing it, questioning it, dialoguing with it, right? Yeah, um, dialoguing with it. Yeah. Um, do you think that you, you, you've, you've reflected a lot on that, that, that ability or desire to kind of get to a place of receptivity when listening to a sermon? Um, are you, like, a, a classically orthodox definition of what's going on in the Protestant pulpit is that somehow if God decides to be there in the middle of a given sermon, that somehow the preacher, if she or he is doing their work right, is actually functioning, Karl Barth says, as God's herald, you know, speaking mm-hmm. God's word. Uh, if they're preaching biblically, if they're cracking it open, if God, there's a lot of contingencies here, but, you know, if God decides to participate in it, that um, and that what one is hearing uh, in Chicago on a Sunday morning in 2016 is uh, formally no different from what somebody heard Paul preaching um, in Athens, you know, 2,000 years ago, right? That there's like the same thing is happening, that yeah. Christ is present. Um, now, preachers can sort of embrace or reject that, uh, but also I think can be motivated by it, can be overwhelmed by it. Um, as a listener of sermons, um, do you bring that set of assumptions in? You know what I mean? Are you like, well, I wonder what the word of God will, you know, how that will settle over me today. Um, I think at my worst, I do. <laughs> I think when I'm being kind of pompous, I am about being like a good, a good Christian woman. Um, but I, I, I went to a conference recently that had a lot of sort of celebrity Christian speakers. And I found myself at one point a little bit disappointed at like, well, I'm not having this sort of personal revelatory, like revelation blowing my mind experience right now. And it was just sort of like, I had to make that realization of like, am I looking for like this personal relationship with, or personal relationship or personal experience or even like just wanting to hear or do or be somewhere cool um, versus like trying to have an experience sort of opening myself up to God. And it's sort of that, like as someone listening to a sermon, it's sort of, this is strangely the same advice that I've given to lots of my single friends about dating. Like if I had to give advice to a preacher and again, I'm doing this as someone who's really been like practicing Christianity as a, a fully engaged adult for about 18 months, maybe. Um, just... That's good. You haven't accumulated like all these barnacles. <laughs> but it's it, the fact that you are the person giving the sermon matters very little. Like you are not that cool or that important. Like you're the person that is holding that space, creating that space, creating that vacuum. Like you're not, you're not that cool. Like they don't, you matter so much less than sort of the. Than the word of God, right? Right. Than the word of God or the environment. 
Well, I think that's great. I mean, and, and to go back to your to, to your prior um, um, uh, parallel of, of ministers and therapists, it's the same thing, right? Yeah. I mean, you're not, one does not go to therapy, hopefully, because they want their therapist to like them or because they think their therapist is a really fascinating person, um, right? I mean, maybe sure. those, maybe that's, maybe your therapist likes you, maybe they don't, maybe, maybe, you know, you probably shouldn't know that, but maybe they're interesting, maybe they're really boring, maybe yeah. you would disagree with them politically. None of that ought to really matter, right, if they're doing their work. Yeah. There's a clinical dimension, obviously, to, to, to psychotherapy, but there's a, if I hear you right, there's sort of a clinical dimension to preaching too, right? That Yeah, it, yeah. I think so. Like that it's giving, it, it's creating this space where it's, it feels safe, to reflect and sort of be vulnerable together and then just sort of like whatever comes up comes up you know this to me the material itself of the sermon is less important that you know the the lovely stories that are being told me focusing specifically on the words that are being said and you know taking like i when I came back to Christianity, I sort of was like, I'm going to be like a note-taking Christian. I'm going to get myself a Bible that I carry every day. I'm going to make notes in the margins, which I think is a wonderful practice that is probably right for a lot of people. But what I found much more useful isn't so much the listening to the sermon verbatim, but really having that space around those people with the word of God to let whatever's going to come up, come up. And Mm -hmm. if it's, if I can't stop thinking about my grocery list or, you know, something someone said on the bus, um, maybe there's a reason for that. So just to be in it experientially in a way and to understand, right, that God may be acting that way. God may be active in the room, um, prompting you to think about something that happened on the bus. Exactly. Purposefully. You're kind of surrendering to the experience, right? Exactly. Um, that's beautiful. I have, uh, it's funny. I've insisted on that from the pulpit before just to kind of like bring this full circle in a dogmatic way. Like you have to surrender to the, you know, like get your pride out of the way. And, and that doesn't work either. <laughs> no, not at all. It's like, it's like meditation. Like it, it, and I, and I should say like I, at one point was like in training to be a yoga teacher. So I, I reference that a lot when I talk about stuff. It's that it, Anytime you're trying to meditate or trying to do something, the the harder you try to do it, like the, the less you're doing it. Mm. You just have to just let it go. And and sometimes you need like, you know, whatever. Maybe some people use the rosary when they pray to go through that process of like a, a, a physical sort of experience or there's routines or like praying the hours. And those are, of course, like beautiful, real, meaningful religious religious experiences, but also going through those processes operationally it it just it shut down shuts down your monkey brain and lets you just sort of like experience that's great and i think that we can uh, this tradition especially can fall into this notion of it's all about rationality right like i'm going to break open this intellectual truth for you in a way that i've been afforded the time to do it's going to be somewhat self-evident you're going to receive it and you're going to think about it, you know, and it's a very sort of almost transactional, um, high level understanding of what's going on. And what you're talking about is an opening of the whole self. Rachel, thank you so much for taking time to talk this through. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks so much.
Thank you for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Elizabeth Palmer.